too much. Let's talk a little bit. You don't eat much, you don't talk much. <laughs> I'm just listening. This is the Just Listening Podcast with pizza artist Eric John. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show today. This is Just Listening, and I am Eric John. Before we get into it, of course, I've got to tell you about the absolute best artisan soda in the entire world. That's Yacht Club Soda. Go to YachtClubSoda.com today and check out all the amazing flavors they've got. I mean, I can tell you some of them, right? It's blue raspberry. That's one of my favorites. Orange cream, root beer, regular cream. They've got strawberry, pineapple, grape. The list goes on and on and on. You've really got to check out all the amazing flavors. Um, You can mix and match. You can have a, a case of 12 sent out to you. John will ship it right to your door as long as you live in the United States of America. Um, so go to yachtclubsoda.com today. Uh, trust me, you're, if you mix and match and you get a lot of these different flavors, your refrigerator is going to look beautiful. All these amazing glass bottles with the uh, the different colors. And then, of course, the taste is just unmatched. So go to yachtclubsoda.com today and order some for yourself. Okay, on the show today, we have Mike Termott. Uh, he is a candidate for president of the United States. Uh, he's running for the Libertarian Party nomination. Um, Mike's uh, prior career in finance and economics included work with banks as a commercial loan officer, the White House Office of Management and Budget as a financial economist, and as a consulting economist to three other federal and international agencies in the field of economic development. Um, that's from Mike's website. Um, Mike has been an advocate for free markets for a long time, and he's also a former police officer. So I'm really excited for this conversation. Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a joy to be with you, Eric. Thank you. Well, thank you for joining me. Uh, I really do appreciate it. And, um, you know, I'm not one to bury the lead here, so uh, I'm going to jump right into it with uh, a very, very basic question. Mike, why are you running for president of the United States? Uh, I am running for president of the United States because I think that the Libertarian Party has a huge opportunity in 2024, but uh, not merely an opportunity. I believe that we have an obligation. I think that uh, an increasing proportion of the American electorate recognizes that our government is going off the rails. Certainly as libertarians, we have recognized that for some time. But the fact that more Americans than ever before are waking up to that idea That's what creates an opportunity for us. But I do believe that the extent to which that has been the case lately, and acceleratingly so, means that we have an obligation. We have an obligation to fight our way back toward the Constitution. We have an obligation to do things that I believe the Republicans and Democrats do not have an interest in doing. If you're waiting for a Republican to stand up for your individual liberties and rights, I think you're waiting for something that is just not going to happen. And similarly, on the Democratic side, I do not believe the Democratic Party any longer has an interest in standing up for, for example, the the First Amendment. I don't think the Democratic Party has, for example, an interest in putting forth an anti-war message like some Democrats uh, used to uh, a long time ago. And and for this reason, as the as I like to say, that as, as the philosophical descendants of the people that put together our Constitution, libertarians have an obligation to, to lead the charge 
back towards sanity and how our government is uh, is developing. Why, why do you think that people are so reluctant to uh, give third parties a chance? I think there are a couple of different reasons. One is the momentum behind the idea that a third party can't win. You know, people like to align themselves with winners, right? And people view the presidential race as a competition among individuals. And if they don't believe that you have an ability to go all the way, they're not going to give you the time, time of day. You know, they, they might think that your philosophy is the greatest thing since sliced bread. But if, if they don't think that you're a viable option, they just don't have an interest because they have an interest in paying attention to people who are uh, the most viable competitors. And so I think there's a certain amount of momentum there. I also believe that the media has made a huge contribution to setting in stone this idea that we have a two-party system. It's always going to be a two-party system and that for some weird reason we should like it that way. Certainly since the advent of, of uh, cable news, we have bifurcated into camps on the left and, and on the right that seem no longer to have a real policy agenda as much as they used to, but more align themselves with the idea of just trying to keep the other side out of power. That seems to be the number one objective of either of the major parties these days. And so it sets up this natural contentiousness that is, uh, you know, that, that lends credence to the idea that it ought to be a two-party system. Each party keeping the other one afloat in terms of providing the enemy that everybody needs to feed the media beast. So I think that those are those are a couple of the uh, couple of the reasons. And of course, I think libertarians, you know, ourselves, we're not helping the situation in the sense that we're the party that stands up against the machine, and the machine is highly intertwined with the machine of media. And so, you know, if if you're a good uh, corporate type helping to run uh, CNN, for example, it, it can't warm your feet to, you know, the idea of having a libertarian on who's going to say, gee, CNN, you know, why is it that you're carrying water for the Democratic uh, White House during the COVID uh, pandemic in a way that, that did not help us? You know, why is it, uh, Twitter, uh, that you fell into line so easily with pressure from the White House to, to edit out statements made by people that called into question what the White House was, was doing, the information the White House was putting out, the information the CDC was putting out? You know, why is it that you're so, so on board with the idea of editing out uh making sure that people don't hear all of the messages that are available, all of the information that's available. You know, if you're a libertarian and, and you're trying to hold the media accountable at the same time you're trying to hold government accountable, that's naturally going to make it difficult for a libertarian to get traction. You know, it occurs to me also that, um, you know, there's, there's so many people in the country that don't vote at all. 
Um, actually, I think I think you could probably say that one of the biggest voting blocks in the country is is, is non-voters. I mean, it's sort of a contradiction in terms. You know, yeah, it's absolutely. not really a voting block if they don't vote. Well, but, a potential um, voting block, right? It's a it's a big potential voting block. Um, you know, and, and one of my theories as to why Trump was able to win in 2016 is I think a lot of people who hadn't voted in a while um, came out and voted. And I think that's why the exit polls and a lot of the polling was wrong. Um, how, do, what, how do you speak to those people in particular, the people who are so disaffected by the media, by the things you're talking about, um, to, to, to get them motivated to actually get up and participate in the process? What do, what do, you, what do you say to those yeah. people? Yeah, I agree. By the way, I agree with you. I'm glad you brought it up. I think that that is one of the things that, that uh, pollsters missed regarding Trump. I think the other thing that they missed is the extent to which people were unwilling to tell the truth when asked by a pollster whether they back a guy like Trump. Uh, it, it's an uncomfortable thing to back a guy like Trump. Uh, for a variety of reasons. Look, I think that most Americans have a libertarian streak. Most Americans are on board with the idea that we should be a, a tolerant nation, tolerant of other people's points of view, tolerant of other people's cultures, backgrounds, uh, races, uh, origin stories of of any sort, tolerant of other people's lifestyles generally. And for this reason, I think that people understand what it is that the Constitution was set up to do. The Constitution was not set up so that the government could go bossing us around. And I think that Americans just naturally understand that and view that as, an, as a style of freedom for which we should be grateful that does separate us from other Western democracies, even much less the, and much greater separates us from the rest of the world. So in this sense, I think that the object of the game is to appeal to people both on a very fundamental level, as well as uh, sort of on an issue level in an objective fashion. So, for example, if you're talking about foreign policy, to pick an example, you want to remind people that the, the simple dignity of being represented by a foreign policy that, that reflects your values, that reflects your ethics, that reflects your predilection toward not being aggressive toward the rest of the world, that dignity is gone. We don't have a foreign policy in the United States that reflects the values of most Americans. We have a foreign policy that relies heavily on the projection of military power around the world, that relies heavily on our ability to control uh, what other nations do. The reason that we're a member of NATO, for example, uh, is not because the Europeans cannot afford to provide their own defense. It is set up in, in large part at least the American participation element of it, is so that we can achieve some measure of, of control and so that we can project military hegemony. That is not reflective of what most Americans are. Most Americans would not point to, for example, uh, anything that we've done in the last two generations and say that ethically speaking, they're really glad that we did that. And so on a very fundamental ethical basis, I think that we can appeal to most Americans who would be disappointed by what Republicans and Democrats have, have been uh, talking about 
have achieved, have brought forth in, in the last generation, certainly in the last 10 years. The other thing is that on an objective level, on an empirical level, I think that most Americans are, are on board with the idea that our government has not done a, a very good job. And to keep the focus on this example of foreign policy, there, there are not situations in the last two generations of Americans, there are not situations where most Americans would point to that and say, that was a good idea, notwithstanding the fact that it cost us billions of dollars, or in the case of Afghanistan and Iraq, trillions of dollars, notwithstanding the fact that we lost thousands of lives, or in the case of Iraq and Afghanistan, cost us hundreds of thousands of foreign nationals' lives, that those are good ideas anyway, that that worked out well, that we achieved something in our long-term interests. There are not such examples. Americans do not believe that we have done a good job of projecting military power and using it to control other nations in a way that is paid off in our long-term interests. And so in, in that sense, I think that Americans are more ready than ever before to hear not only is our foreign policy out of alignment with your ethics, we're just not good at it. You know, we're very good at a tactical level. You know, we're good at blowing things up, killing people, moving material, opening sea lanes. You know, we're good at all kinds of things on a tactical level. But in terms of achieving things that are in the long-term interests of Americans, our foreign policy just doesn't do that anymore. And I think the Americans are ready to hear that, including especially those who have been disaffected by the Republican Party and by the Democratic Party, and that includes a lot of people that haven't voted lately. What what should our policy be, uh, Mike, towards the, the crisis that's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Uh, we have got to do everything we can to bring that to a close for a variety of reasons. And by the way, I would say that about any conflict, that it's in our interest for there not to be a conflict. But that does not mean it's not in our interest to participate in it in order to uh, try to bring it to a close one way or another. And I believe that we are not pursuing a policy today designed to bring it to a close. Indeed, providing Ukraine with assistance is exactly the policy you would follow if you were trying to prolong it. Our policy should be to force both sides into a negotiated uh, settlement. We should not be providing assistance to Ukraine. The reasons that have been given to Americans by the Defense Department, by the White House, the reasons that we have been given for supporting Ukraine just don't hold water. Just logically speaking, they don't hold water. It is not true that Ukraine was an example of a robust uh, robust, democratic system. It was a highly corrupt government before, it is now, and it will continue to be unless it makes really profound changes. And of course, it's to be fair, it's in no position to make tremendous strides today. They're a nation at war, and we all feel horribly bad about that. But it is not true that this is a war to save democracy. That's, that's not true. The reason we're in this war, and we are in this war, the reason we're in this war is because it is a proxy war with Russia, and we believe, the Defense Department believes, our government, our federal government believes, 
it is somehow in our interest to weaken the Russian army. If there is anything, in my view, that this war has proved, it is that the Russian army was not to be feared to the extent to which it had been. This is a, an army that was unable to overrun Ukraine even before we were providing the tremendous amount of assistance. We've provided well over $100 billion of assistance so far. We have over a thousand troops there that are, we're told, not engaged in frontline warfare. We've lost a couple American lives there, yes, uh, but we do have over a thousand troops there as as advisors. The President of the United States has been there. This does not even feel like a proxy war anymore. It feels like just any old hot war that, that America is involved in. But the reason that we're doing it is is to wage a proxy war against Russia, and I just don't find that ethically compelling. So for this reason, I think that we should no longer be involved. We never should have been involved. Now that we are, we should be pressing both sides for a negotiated settlement. And on the other side of that, I believe that it's time to signal the heads of the European nations that is no longer in the interest of the United States to be participating in NATO. We should be exiting NATO. If, if those nations that are the other members believe that it, it remains in their interest to fear the Russian army, then you do you. Uh, it's time to start spending two, two and a half, three, three and a half percent of GDP on defense, like the United States has done, but it is not in the United States' interest to do so, to be your plan A. A libertarian administration could not ethically, true to its values, reach out to the American public and say, we are going to continue taking money from you forcibly, by the way. You're going to take your tax dollars and use it to be the plan A of European defense. There is absolutely no reason the Europeans cannot fund their own defense and do so in a way that would arguably be much more cost efficient than the United States doing it for them. You know, it occurs to me that, you know, one of the one of the criticisms that I think non-libertarians have of libertarians is that they 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 feel like they're weak on foreign policy. And of course, I've always felt like this is this is completely false and it's a backwards way of thinking. But um, you know, for for the non-libertarians that are, that might be listening to this, um, explain to them what what sort of situation would have to take place. What would have to happen for you as president to go to the Congress and ask them for a declaration of war? I think this is a great question. I do like the way you ask it because I don't believe that we should be engaged in military conflict without a declaration of war, by the way. As a matter of fact, I would go one step further and say, not only should we require a declaration of war to be engaged in a military conflict, in other words, to, to be at war, but I believe that that declaration should be approved by a majority of the states. I would argue that a majority of the state legislatures should vote to support that declaration or else uh, we shouldn't be in it. Because as we know, to, to the point of your previous question, in a two-party system, you could easily have one party in power in, in the legislature that agrees with the White House 
and the White House is going to get whatever vote it wants. And we can't have uh, such a system. It has to be as difficult as possible. And answered, the specific answer to your question is the only reason we should be at war is if we are attacked, if our interests are attacked. That doesn't necessarily mean geographically, but we would have to be attacked in a very, very explicit way. That does not mean merely uh, another nation for which we hold some measure of sympathy is attacked, but we ourselves would have to be uh, attacked or our interests, our assets would have to be attacked. And that, that could include cyber, by the way. It doesn't have to be uh, geographic, but it would have to be uh, specific and it would have to be specific to the citizens uh, of the United States. You know, one of the ways I think in which Donald Trump failed, uh, in term, at least in terms of the promises that he that he proclaimed, um, is that he didn't drain the swamp, right? That he that was his big, you know, his big slogan, right, was to drain the swamp. Um, you know, you you get elected president, right? It's it's day one, and you're sitting in the Oval Office, and in walks the director of the CIA, in walks the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and they sit down and they say, "Look, this is the way this works." Okay, you, you do what we say. Um, you know, maybe they throw on the video of the JFK assassination, you know, and they threaten you. Um, they threaten your family. Wh- what do you what do you do to fight against that? Because I think a lot of libertarians especially um, believe very strongly that um, in the presence of the deep state and that there's um, powerful interests uh, really controlling things. Um, how do you fight against that? Uh, and, and the people who believe this are not completely wrong. Uh, there is a tremendous amount of control over our federal government wielded in Washington by unelected officials. It is absolutely true. Uh, Look, there are several steps. Uh, I have been accused in the past of suggesting there is a silver bullet to some of these problems, and sometimes I make things sound uh, simple. And, And I just want your listeners to know, if I accidentally make this sound like it's easy or simple, I apologize. It is it is none of those things. Uh, there are some specific steps that you need to take. For starters, you need to realize that to get rid of functions in Washington, much less an entire agency, to get rid of functions, you have to make that function or that agency as politically impotent as possible from the beginning. So what you need to do is start out by wielding the power that you do have. The president has the right to appoint uh, several hundred uh, Senate-confirmed appointees, leaders, and thousands of, of others. You need strong libertarian leadership at the heads of these very, very important agencies who support the idea of shrinking these agencies in size and scope and budget in activities and to do so with the objective being to winnow them down until you can move legislation to sunset them completely. But that is the objective, is to sunset some of these agencies uh, completely. Uh, The FBI, for example, is an organization that has not had, in any sense, a golden age 
We have not been able to trust the FBI since its inception. This is an organization that is ripe to be sunset. The political environment is moving against the FBI, but it remains politically a very powerful organization. You need to be able to break it up into pieces and then sunset it. You need to take the the anti-espionage element of it, move it to the Defense Department, for example. The piece that is... uh, you know, politically motivated that handles issues inside the federal government needs to be eradicated completely. And the the largest part of the FBI is pursuing cases that are crimes inside every state of the union already. There's no reason state agencies can cannot pick that up. So, for example, the FBI is an organization that can be split up into pieces and then cast to the wind. And other agencies all have their unique stories about different ways that you go after them. But it can be done. We need ultimately to end completely the Department of Labor, the Department of Transportation, the Department of Education. We need to get rid of the Federal Reserve System, not because it's not filled with thousands of people trying to do the right thing, smart people, hardworking people, uh, people who believe that they're, you know, pursuing the interests of the American public, because it is. But they have proven over the past 100 years that the Federal Reserve System is just utterly incapable of living up to the mandate that we gave it. As a professional economist for decades myself, in and around Washington, in and around the banking industry, I've known literally hundreds of economists at the Federal Reserve System who are wonderful people. But notwithstanding all of that talent, The Fed cannot do what we've asked it to do. And so for this reason, it needs to be replaced by a rules-based system. We need to take away its uh, balance sheet. We need to make its regulatory function completely optional. And for goodness sake, we have to stop it from issuing cryptocurrency. So each one of these agencies has a different story. But each one has a way to go after it and sunset these agencies. So I think that that's, uh, that's very important. So it, it sounds to me like you're not, these, these people don't scare you, is what, it, is what it sounds like to me. Is that right? Well, I spent a lot of years in Washington. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I do understand how it worked. I worked for the White House for a couple of years. Uh, I worked for other international agencies Uh, I was an advocate for competition and free markets inside the financial services industry in Washington uh, for a lot of years, for a decade. Uh, Later on, I had my own business in strategic consulting and educating financial services executives inside the banking industry, uh, mostly. So I've been in and around uh, Washington for a long, long time, and you do learn that there are things that you should probably be afraid of, uh, but that doesn't mean that they are things that shouldn't be done. There are things that absolutely have to be done. And for example, uh, you've got to be ready to send the signal that whistleblowers are welcome. We need to pardon uh, you know, people like uh, Julian Assange. Uh, we need to pardon people uh, like Snowden, for example, we need to send the signal that the government is no longer going to be positioned as the enemy of the people. We need to welcome these voices. It is not right 
that the government is today prosecuting someone because they revealed information. I'm talking about the young Air Force reservist who some months ago revealed information that he was privy to about how well, how poorly in this case, the war was going in Ukraine. This was classified information because the government did not want the world to know what it knew. And consider, (laughs) Eric, consider the Russian government knew darn well how well or how poorly the war in Ukraine was going. The, The government of Ukraine knew darn well how well or how poorly the war was going. So from whom was the federal government keeping this information? They were keeping it from us. They classified the information, and when it was leaked, they're prosecute. They're in the business now of prosecuting the leaker because they didn't want the American public to know how poorly, from our point of view, the war was going. How little we were getting in terms of a bang for our buck. How much greater an investment in resources would be required to get the result that the White House wanted. This is information that they did not want Americans to know. We need to send a signal that that is an unacceptable posture for the government to present to the citizens. Yeah, it's funny you bring that up, actually. So that that raid actually took place about 15 miles from my house um, in uh, just over the border in Massachusetts from where I am in Rhode Island. And, you know, it's also kind of funny um, that, you know, it wasn't too long after that happened that, uh, all the, you know, this big brouhaha in the media over the classified documents, um, of, you know, that Trump had and that Biden had in his garage and, um, you know, it's sort of, sort of putting it out there, you know, these are, you know, the classified materials really important, et cetera, et cetera. If you were president, would you, would you pretty much just declassify everything? I think that you have, at the very least, you've got to say that anything that shouldn't be classified isn't. In other words, you cannot treat something uh, from a criminal point of view. You cannot treat the leak of information that should not be classified as though it were classified. That's a that's a problem from just right off the bat. In other words, the bar for what gets classified is one issue and what you do about a leak is another issue. So to your point, the the other issue is how do you set the bar for what should be classified? Well, not only would I set the bar much, much higher, but what material are we talking about that would remain classified? Because if we're engaged in something that we think would be embarrassing to the American government, to the U.S. federal government, we ought not to be doing it. In other words, we need to look backwards. Yes, uh, I think that we need to uh, adopt a posture that says the default is for nothing to be classified. You would have to make a case on a case-by-case basis of anything that should be classified. And it should report to Uh, the White House General Counsel's office, because if you need something to be classified, you have got to make a case to my administration personally that it needs to be classified, and here's what we're doing. 
because that's the only way to get a heads up on the, the, the things that people are doing that they need to keep secret. Does that make sense? In other oh, words, absolutely. In other words, we would take away any particular agency's ability to classify something itself. I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. I think that's actually a really good idea and a good, really good way to do it. Um, I want to I want to pivot a little bit to money and politics. Um, you know, uh, people like I didn't know there was cry. money in politics. Eric. <laughs> well, you know, people like to decry the idea of money in politics and, and uh, you know, especially the us freedom lovers. But, um, you know, the, the idea of the grassroots campaign and et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's very it's very idyllic. But, um, you know, it occurs to me that the American Revolution was funded by the wealthiest people in, in the country at the time. Can 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 we turn things around without the billionaires in this country? Yes. Uh, but I also believe that we can turn it around with the billionaires. I think that there are ways to go at this that will prove successful for the libertarian movement with a lowercase l and possibly even for the libertarian party with the capital L. Uh, first of all, I think that we should all have a problem telling anybody. And don't get me wrong, I'm no fan of billionaires. It's not like I'm having lunch with them every day. Uh, but I think that we should have a problem telling people that they can't do what it is they want to do with their money. Just as a, a default position, if you're a government telling someone you cannot use your money for some particular, whatever that is, I think that you've got to check yourself. You've got to really sit and contemplate your navel for a while. I mean, what are you doing with your life if your job is to tell some billionaire he can't communicate to the American public with his money in a way that he wants to? That's a that's a weird thing. So, And I don't think you need to be a libertarian to be on board with that idea. But certainly from a libertarian point of view, uh, that's an idea that ought to give you pause. But having said that, uh, the, the, any movement needs a national component. It is not true that American history is replete with examples of grassroots, grassroots movements that have later you know, gone on to become successful without having an umbrella, without having a national campaign without having uh, national leadership. You know, something has to be uh, at the 30,000 foot level for movements to be successful. And then, yeah, they take, they take hold at the grassroots level. They spread at the grassroots level. But we need to recognize, I believe, in the Libertarian Party, that we need to play a role in the Libertarian movement by running in this in this example in this case uh, a national campaign in the form of a presidential campaign take advantage of the presidential race to launch a movement that will get some traction now the way you've got to do that is to offer a product that is of interest that is of interest to donors uh, to your point but but also that is of interest to media and to the American public. And these things uh, work together. They do not work against each other. They work together. If you put out uh, a product that is completely differentiated from Republicans and Democrats, that 
really does represent uh, an alternative to the authoritarian regime of the two-party system and do so in a way that the American public can find viable. In other words, you need to run a professional campaign. You need to run a, a campaign uh, which is run with credibility. You need a candidate of credibility. I've had two different careers in public service. As I mentioned, uh, I was a professional economist for decades. I taught at universities, three different universities. I taught economics. My second career was as a police officer for 12 and a half years on, on the road in Broward County. So I think I bring a certain amount of credibility that we've not had access to in the Libertarian Party in the past. So what I'm saying is you put forth a campaign that is completely differentiated, that is backed up by professionalism and credibility, you're going to get a look. And that's going to give you a chance to tap into not only the fact that most Americans do have the, a libertarian streak, but that media will find interesting in the sense that, you know, here's an underdog. It may be strange, novel, but it's interesting. And there will be a symbiotic relationship among donors, the media, and uh, the American electorate, including those people that you brought up earlier that have not been recent voters. So in that sense, I'm very, very optimistic. Were, were you always a libertarian, Mike, or did you come to it later, later in life? I was born a libertarian. I, I came out uh, talking Austrian <laughs> economics when I was uh, three years old. No, um, like, like most libertarians, I, I grew up in uh, another party. In my case, I grew up in the Republican Party. I was uh, fiscally conservative. I was a banker. Uh, when I was at the White House, uh, I was a civil servant in the George Herbert Walker Bush administration. I later uh, worked for his reelection campaign in 1992. Uh, I was one of those young, fiscally conservative, uh, late 20s uh, economists who really liked it when he said, read my lips, no new taxes. And then, of course, just as famously, possibly more famously, went back on that pledge. <laughs> that's, uh, I, I appreciate you laughing at my expense. Uh, that's a tough pill for, for a, a youngster to swallow. Um, it's a wake-up call. It's a maturing experience. It is well. It is, I think it happens to a lot of us, Mike. You know, it happened to me with Obama. You know, I, I voted for Obama in two thousand eight, yep. and um, you know when when he didn't close Guantanamo and he and he didn't get yep. us out of uh, Iraq. That was a tough pill for me to swallow, uh, and it was difficult. Um, but it was the push I needed. Um, you know, to to finally jump over that. You know, those are really wall. interesting examples because. You know, for those of us who weren't Democrats, we could at least say, well, he's going to do some good stuff. And then he didn't. And you're right. You know, I should have had more sympathy for people like you who may have voted for him. And then, you know, it, it always hurts more when it's inside the family. Right. <laughs> of course. Of and course. In, in, in the 90s, later on, uh, while I'm, I'm sure I was... I'm probably sure, I'm sure I'm probable that I was still a registered uh, Republican. Yeah, I was a registered Republican through the 90s. I can remember a buddy of mine saying, 
this is probably 98, 99, somewhere in there. He said, you're a libertarian. And I can remember saying, I don't say horrible things about you. Why would you say such a mean thing to me? And, of course, he didn't mean it horrible. He just meant, you know, the fact that you don't want to get involved in uh, culture wars and you're not all on board with the Republican Party's uh, social agenda, but you're fiscally conservative, uh, you're a libertarian. And I think that he was right, um, but I did not join the Libertarian Party until probably another 10 years later. I became a registered libertarian around the time I became a police officer in 2010. So I served as a police officer while being a registered uh, libertarian which, as you might imagine, sir, uh, fosters a number of weird conversations uh, among police officers who I found do have a very strong libertarian streak. Uh, but for me, it is true that I came to libertarianism from the right-hand side, what I would describe as the right-hand side, meaning uh, recognizing that the world would work better, right? Uh, the economy would be more efficient if we let markets operate, if we let people make decisions for themselves. And it wasn't until later that I came to libertarianism from what I would call the left-hand side, which is to say that even if the government could make decisions for us in a, in a way that would make sense, um, would it have the authority? Authority would have the moral authority would have the ethical right to do so, and the answer has got to be no. You know, one thing I always say to young libertarians when talking about whether or not you know how they feel about joining the Libertarian Party, one of the things I always say is imagine, imagine if socialism worked. This is a weird. This would be the strangest thing I say in your show today, Eric. And maybe, <laughs> probably the strangest thing I say in your show today. Imagine socialism were, imagine Hayek was wrong, right? Imagine that the government could make decisions for you in a way that made our economy work better. That there were lots of smart people and lots of big computers in Washington. And if they made every decision for us, we would all be happier, wealthier, uh, have greater income and, you know, hot dogs would taste better and beer would be colder and it would be a better world. Imagine that. Would, would the government have the right to make decisions for you? And the answer has got to be no. That we have the right to make decisions for ourselves because it's not always just a matter of economics. Libertarianism is all about you having the right to pursue, and I would argue the obligation to pursue your life by your own standards, that welfare can only be defined in the mind of the one who experiences it, that you have to be the one to decide what it is that's best for you, because that's part of leading your life. And the government does not have a right to lead your life for you, even if you yourself thought it could do a better job of it. It's up to you to lead your own life. And that's what I call coming to libertarianism, not just from the right-hand side, but from the left-hand side, the ethical side, the side that says the government 
is only here to protect your right to make decisions for yourselves. What are your thoughts and feelings on anarchism, Mike? Uh, I love anarchists um, for their enthusiasm. And I love anarchists because I'm not sure they're wrong, right? Um, I really believe that we need to give an anarchist a hug day once a year (laughs) because... (laughs) Because to be an anarchist, I believe, is a highly frustrating experience, even by the standards of a libertarian. I consider anarchists to be a subset of libertarians, not something different from libertarians. Um, if, If we had our druthers as libertarians, our government would be extremely small, extremely small in in size. Uh, extremely narrow in scope, extremely focused, extremely limited. I do believe the Constitution is a libertarian document, uh, grossly, largely speaking, an outline. Uh, A lot has gone wrong since then, and a lot was imperfect about the document as it was drafted. But you can have a, a, a Constitution, you can have a government of delimited powers that exist for the single legitimate purpose of protecting your rights to providing some sort of national defense, uh, to foster an environment in which individuals can grow, uh, foster an environment in which communities can make decisions for themselves, uh, including such things as setting up their own criminal code and making decisions about how they want to enforce that. All of that, I believe, is consistent with both libertarianism and what I would call minarchism, uh, the idea of having a very small government. If, so what do you... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Go, please, no, no, please continue. I was just going to say, if an anarchist would say, even all of that could be handled in the private sector, I say, amen, brother. At that point, we're just having a discussion about the definition of public sector versus uh, private sector. The only place that, you know, I believe that government should exist is to defend our rights. And so in that sense, I believe that a minarchist libertarian like myself and an anarchist, uh, I think we're completely on board. So, so what do you say to the anarchist who would, who might say something like, you know, Hey, wait a second. We had a government like that. We had a constitution at the founding and look what it turned into. Um, what would you say to someone who makes that argument, uh, against the idea that we can, we can have a night watchman state that doesn't get out of control eventually? I would say you're absolutely right. It sucks. And, uh, (laughs) we need to keep working at it. Um, but the path toward what it is that you want and the path toward what it is that I want is the same path that we're going in the same direction that before we can fight past the constitution, we have to fight toward the constitution. We have to get back to the constitution. We have to get back to the idea of limiting the power of the government and that we're all on board with, with that. There, there is no 
alternative path that is consistent with an anarchist point of view that is not consistent with with my point of view. There's no, um, uh, let's say we agree, and we do, right? Uh, We were unable to adhere to the Constitution as a people, as a nation, as a body politic, as a government. We were unable to adhere to the Constitution. We today live in a post-constitutional nation. This is true. If an anarchist points this out, she or he is right. That is right. What are we going to do about it? Well, uh, we need to fight our way back to the Constitution and then find a way to adhere to it. Uh, I'm running on what I call a gold new deal, which is to say a fundamentally different relationship between us and our government. The flagship of which is a constitutional amendment to end federal supremacy and give states the right to resolve conflicts between uh, state legislators and federal legislators and, and to resolve those conflicts in state court. In other words, uh, a vehicle toward nullification. This, I believe, is the, is the, is the fight that we must fight. There, there isn't an alternative anarchist uh, prescription for fixing the problem. You know, uh, so so I'm I'm an, I would consider myself an anarchist, and you know, one thing that always occurs to me, and it's something I don't hear a lot of anarchists say, um, is that Rothbard, you know, was very was actually very clear about um, how to go about affecting change, um, and he said pretty clearly, I, I you know I wish I could remember which book it was in, and I can't, it, it uh, might have been Anatomy of the State, I'm not sure, but he said that you know you. It's important to articulate the um, the ideal. It's important to speak and 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 um, uh, prognosticate about what the ideal is, and at the same time, take whatever steps you can to to roll it back, even if it's if if it's baby steps. Um, that that those steps are better than nothing. But at the same time, make sure you're clear about what the end goal is, and that these two things can happen simultaneously. You don't. Um, need to vote no on, you know, a, a tax cut because you don't think it goes far enough. You know, that that sort of thing, because you're trying to be yeah, ideological. I agree with that pure. wholeheartedly. Uh, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, indeed, I believe that there are multiple reasons why that's true. Not only uh, do you have to articulate where it is you want to get to as a matter of sort of philosophical leadership so that people know where you're so that you understand the principles by which you're going to make decisions. So you understand if a different situation comes up, a different proposal comes up, a a different uh, political possibility comes up, we're all on the same page. We know, you know, how that fits into our overall philosophical rubric. That's one reason. The other reason is a practical matter, a strategic matter, a, a political matter is that we need to be able to stand apart from where the other parties want to go. Now, the other parties have not done a good job for decades in articulating a philosophy of where it is that they want to go. The Republican Party, for example, is no longer fiscally conservative. The Democratic Party is no longer, in any realistic sense, socially liberal. They're all about censorship and about canceling each other if they don't like what you say. So... uh, those parties are no longer uh, good examples 
of articulating a, a, a philosophical experience from which to differentiate ourselves, but we can differentiate ourselves completely from the world that they have created. We can differentiate ourselves philosophically uh, in, the, in the sense that although those parties seem to have merged in many of their political positions, we represent something very, very different. And talking about where it is that we want to go is a huge vehicle for differentiating from them and for giving the American public a, a real vision for what's ahead and how much better life can be. In that sense, I think that it's more scrumptious for Americans to hear a minarchist point of view. Uh, I think that Americans naturally recognize that our government has gotten too big. And so telling them that you want to make it smaller, uh, I think immediately gives you common ground with most Americans. And remember, our job is to find common ground with Republican and Democratic voters, not to find common ground with Republican politicians and Democratic politicians. So in that sense, I think it works very well. So, Mike, before we end the interview, I just want you to be able to speak to the people listening, uh, and in particular, the the libertarians who are listening, and even more specifically, the libertarians who might be listening, who are voting members of the, of the, of the body politic, as it were. Why should they support your candidacy uh, for the libertarian nomination for president um, over, the, over the other candidates that have so far announced? Uh, sure, I, I appreciate that. Uh, the campaign that I am putting together, that I've already uh, put together in no small part, represents a stark departure from what we've had in the Libertarian Party in the past. And that departure is meaningful and necessary in the sense that there are objectives that we have to achieve and to do so have to be pursued in a very different way than we have pursued in the past, specifically that means that we are running on a, a, a very bold, a very principled platform, a very policy forward campaign, uh, an unapologetically libertarian, uh, almost aggressive policy platform. It's what we call the Gold New Deal. People can check it out at goldnewdeal.org. The, the reason it has a name and its own URL uh, is not merely because we're poking some fun at FDR and we're poking some fun at the Green New Deal of AOC, although that's always useful. We are building a platform and branding it so that people see our commitment to not backing down. We are building a campaign based on a platform and therefore that platform is integral to what we will be all about on the other side of the nomination. You don't have to worry that we're going to turn on a dime and say, okay, uh, just kidding about ending the FBI, just kidding about ending the Federal Reserve System, just kidding about uh, finding a way for states to have uh, a vehicle toward nullification, ending federal supremacy, uh, ending the IRS, criminal justice reform, ending qualified immunity. These things are part and parcel of our campaign. And that makes our campaign very, very different from the others. And of course, uh, 
this has to be backed up by credibility and professionalism that our campaign is instituting in a way that campaigns in the past have not. And that's not merely, as I mentioned earlier, my personal background with two different careers in public service and public policy. My whole life has been public service and public policy. That naturally makes our campaign different from others that we've had in the past and does so in a way that makes it important to the American public because the American public expects certain thresholds to be cleared by their candidates or else they're not going to pay attention to you. If you don't have what they expect in a candidate to go all the way to be a credible competitor, then they're not going to, they don't care how great your philosophy is. They're just not going to pay attention. But also the professionalism of our campaign. We have 14 people on, on staff now that are paid, lightly paid, barely paid maybe, but we have 14 professionals on, on our staff. We have a dozen more uh, on our campaign advisory team, loads of uh, volunteers beyond that. So it's a robust, professional team with a lot of credibility. And that, I believe, is doubly important when you're running a very, very bold platform because you can't just be out there standing on the balcony screaming, end the Fed, right? You got to be able to back that up or the media is going to write you off as a crank. In contrast, I'm a professional economist, spent years working with people from the Fed. I know that the Fed is a well-meaning institution, but one that has to go. And that makes us different from other campaigns past and present. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to join me here. It's been a great conversation, and uh, I really do wish you all the best uh, in, in the campaign ahead. There's still a long way to go, um, but uh, but best of luck to you. Thank you, Eric. It's been a joy to be with you. I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to me. I look forward to staying in touch. This is the Just Listening Podcast. I gotta go. Go where? We just got I got that thing. I gotta go. With pizza artist Eric John. Uh, wait a couple of minutes. We'll all leave together, okay? This way you don't go out like a bunch of hobos staggering out one at a time. Please like, share, and subscribe.